Hi there, everybody. My name is Scott Grayson, and you're listening to Mentally Unscripted, the podcast where my co-host Stefan and I inspire you to think more clearly and have better conversations about the topics most impacting us. When you ride along with us, we'll take you on a journey that will show you there's always more than one way to look at an issue. You'll learn to think critically about the world and how to challenge the narratives those in power want you to believe. You won't always agree with us, but that's the point, to learn that we can have deep conversations and learn from each other, no matter how different we are. In today's episode, Myron Weber from Mental Supermodels joins us for a fascinating discussion on whether democracy is, to borrow a phrase from Karl Marx, the opiate of the masses. Is democracy a drug that's dulling our awareness that the United States is becoming less constitutional, less federal, and less of a republic? We had a great discussion that will give anyone listening a lot to think about when it comes to democracy and the direction in which the U.S. is heading. As always, we want to build a community around Mentally Unscripted, so share this episode with your friends and interact with us at mentallyunscripted.com. And remember, the conclusion you reach is less important than the process you follow to get there. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Mentally Unscripted. I am your host, Stefan. I'm here with Scott. Scott, how are you today? I'm doing great. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's hell getting old. I woke up this morning and my back hurt. I, you know, oh. it's like, you know, you're getting old when shit just, excuse me, stuff just starts hurting out of the blue. <laughs> you know, of course, you know, my girlfriend or well now fiance. That's yeah. Right. I'm now engaged. Um, yeah. She would tell me it's from working out too much, but we, we all know we're guys, right? There's, there's no yeah, cause right. and effect. It's never anything we do. It's just random universal things. Right. So, um, but to yeah, other than that, there, what's that? To everyone out there, to everyone out there, you can notice he didn't talk about how much he worked out the day before and the day before. Right. That. He the back hurting, so. So. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll forget what the fiance may know. I don't know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, other than that, I'm doing good. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. I am really excited for today's episode. With us, we have the first three Pete, I, I believe the first three Pete here with us, Myron Weber. He's going to be joining us to talk about something that, that is his thesis around uh, democracy and the republic. I think it's going to be a great episode. Myron, how are you? I am good. Thanks so much for having me back. I didn't realize that I was the first three-time, the first three-peat. I'm, I'm honored. Yeah, well, you know, it does go out selectively, so we're, we're, we're very happy to have you here, but just don't let it go to your head. That's all I'll say. <laughs> oh, too late. Well, for, you, for the- you better watch out because Jeremy might try to bump you off to, to claim that coveted top spot. Is, I, I, it could happen. It, it could happen. Uh, Myron, for those uh, listeners who haven't heard uh, the epi- other episodes you've been on, why don't you give us an introduction? Sure, sure. Well, the one thing I want to make sure that folks know is that I am the co-host of the Mental Supermodels podcast with Jeremy Thomas, who we mentioned just now. And there's a lot of commonality between what's talked about here on Mentally Unscripted and what we talk about on Mental Supermodels. Uh, we have not put out a lot of episodes in uh, 2021, uh, the latter part of the year anyway, but we're back on track uh, to to get on schedule for 2022, hopefully. So should have some good new content coming out there. The other thing I want to mention, oh, by the way, that's mentalsupermodels.com or on any podcast feed, just look for Mental Supermodels. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is my day job. I'm the co-founder of Northwood Advisors, and we develop custom software solutions to solve complex and interesting data problems. So our typical client is a company that has some sort of a data problem to solve, but their core competency 
is not in solving data problems. And that's where we come in to help with uh, building out custom data algorithms, uh, getting into data science, or even just kind of helping manage integrating data from multiple systems and doing business intelligence and data warehousing. So if anyone needs help with that, look me up on LinkedIn or at northwoodadvisors.com. Awesome. Awesome. And yeah, definitely go check out the Mental Supermodels uh, podcast. It's got just excellent content. And, and I feel like we, we approach mental models and model thinking differently. So they're really companion pieces that you can, you can listen to theirs, you can listen to ours, and you can find new ways of thinking and communicating, which is exactly what our shows are about. So without further ado, let's get into the meat of it. You have this idea. I, I think anybody who's listening knows that right now in, in the United States and probably just broadly, uh, people are struggling with where they are in their in their country. And, and specific to the United States, we have what I think is just easily referred to as division. There's, there's a lot of people that are confused about where we are in the country, um, about its direction. Uh, and then we see a lot of people just angry uh, with other people that they affiliate maybe with the opposite tribe, or maybe they're angry with the people and what they consider to be their own tribe for not sticking up for certain values. So there just ends up being division, confusion, and, and, and anger. And you know, you you shared with me this this idea about the difference between democracy and republic, and how you developed this thesis that it may help to explain what's going on. So maybe a model that can help people understand and hopefully then communicate with others. So. Why don't you share with us this this idea that you have? Great, great. Love to. And yeah, I'm really excited to have you guys help flesh it out because I came up with this thesis and uh yeah, I'm not an academic. I don't I don't uh have all day to go off and research. It's been uh it's been many, many years since I read the Federalist papers and the anti-federalist papers and and all of that. And uh and uh even just being able to validate what's going on in the real world. I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. So here's what happened. I overheard a conversation and uh, we've all probably overheard the same conversation where someone mentions something about America and democracy and the other person says in a very pedantic tone, well, actually, America is not a democracy. It's a republic. And I want to be, I want to be clear as I, as I kind of mock that, that <laughs> one of the core principles that we talk about in mental modeling is making distinctions. So why am I mocking this person for making a distinction between democracy and republic? And the answer is, I think it's just not a well thought out position. Um, it reminds me of a story about Winston Churchill. Now, he's one of those historic figures that um, many of these stories, I don't know if it's true or apocryphal, but the story I heard was that someone once criticized Winston Churchill for ending a sentence in a preposition. And his response was, that is precisely the sort of errant pedantry up with which I shall not put. <laughs> <laughs> And so whether the story is true or not, that is a great line. And wow. so I feel like like that response of actually it's not a democracy, it's a republic, is just a pedantic, not well-formed idea. And it got me thinking. And so here's, here's where my idea went. So first of all, the first thought I had was that that is really a false dichotomy, that republic isn't the opposite of democracy. They're really two different vectors. Okay. So 
um, in in the way that I'm formulating this thesis, I'm thinking of democracy as the vector that describes the the breadth of franchise or the nature of voting, right? Who gets to vote? Whose vote gets counted? And so we know that uh, originally when America was founded, uh, the voting franchise was very limited, right? Um, male landowners, right? And so um, then it's expanded over time and we can get into that more, right? But the republic nature, the republicanism part of it, and obviously Democrat and Republican refer to parties, but clearly in this conversation, we mean them not as the political party. But So the republic refers to the extent to which public policy reflects the will of the voters. And so the other part of then this idea really relates to that, because my second thought is that that standard line about it's a democracy, uh, it's not a democracy, it's a republic, is very incomplete. And so if one is to be a boorish pedant, one should do so thoroughly because the correct line would be America is not a democracy. Um, it's a constitutional federal republic with democratically elected representatives. And Ooh. that would then be a much better formulation of that distinction. And so as I thought through that further, you know, and what does that mean? I also then thought about, okay, so that, that gives us sort of four built-in mechanisms of how governance was established formally in America. We have the Constitution. We have federalism, which means the, the balance of power between federal government and, and states. Uh, we have republicanism, which means it's, it's representative, not direct, uh, um, ballot initiatives for every single law. And it's democracy, which means that representatives are selected by voting. So we have all those, those built in formal mechanisms. But then over time, we also have institutions that were not built in, but they grew up over time. And I'm referring to things like the permanent bureaucracy, the standing military and the intelligence apparatus the Federal Reserve, and so forth. So we could think of all of these mechanisms of public policy and governance that exist today that were not part of the original formally built-in mechanism. And so if we take all of that and, and really build up to, to my thesis, it's actually that perhaps, stealing the line from, from Karl Marx, uh, perhaps democracy is the opiate of the people. And that it it dulls the awareness that America has become over time less constitutional, less federal, and less republican. And what I mean by all of that is is that the uh, you know the literal con original construction of the Constitution, and there are obviously different opinions. And and Scott, I'm sure as an attorney, you'll you'll weigh in and have have more nuance on this. There are certainly different opinions about uh, how we should receive and interpret the Constitution and, you know, literal meaning and all of that. Uh, but we're less constitutional, certainly, over time. We're less federal. Power has shifted from the states to the the national, the central government. And we're less Republican, I believe, because the will of the voters is no longer as clearly reflected because of these permanent institutions that have so much influence over 
policy. And so I'm using, you know, public policy, the, the political science term referring to the collection of laws, regulations, the formal and informal way that, that things are, um, that, that mandatory burdens are put on uh, people by the government. And so, um, you know, and, and I'm really just thinking through this in, in my thesis, not to say this is good or bad. I think it does have some real implications uh, politically and culturally, but I'm just trying to evaluate, um, is this thesis true? And what does that mean if it is? So hopefully I've laid that out clearly. Happy to answer any questions if I didn't, but what do you guys think? I think it's clear. I think we can wrap. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Scott, why why don't you uh, take the first stab? First off, when you were talking, I think you're onto something. Uh, I don't know if you listened to Brian McClanahan, but he's a historian, a libertarian historian who does a podcast. And he essentially came to the same conclusion that we're a federal or a constitutional republic, I think is what he called it. Um, but along those same lines. And I'm, he's much more of an expert on the history of the founding of the uh, country than I am. So I'm going to defer to him on that. But it sounds right to me. Like when you say that, there's something, it, it just sounds logical. So we know that uh, the founding fathers were not huge fans of democracy, right? They were they were big readers of Aristotle. And Aristotle's got his framework for governments. He's got the the, the good forms of governments and the bad forms of governments based off of one ruler, a small handful of rulers, and many rulers. And in the many rulers category, he lists a polity as the good form and democracy as the bad form. Okay. And so building on that, I, th- I think it's reasonable to say that the founding fathers were trying to stay away from democracy. They, were, they put an element of democracy in there with the House of Representatives. But then the state, um, the states were represented in the Senate, which we have since changed. And the president was a, uh, I, I guess, more of a combination of the state and the people, if I understand what the original reason behind the Electoral College was. Um, so, yeah, everything you said rings true. I think you're on to something there. And I also do think it's, it's a false dichotomy. Um, and it's it's an argument that I don't know we really need to have because you're right. We do have a, you know, whether you want to call it a shadow government, a deep state, whatever, there are there is a large group of uh, unelected bureaucrats who persist from administration to administration who have their own agendas. And that's one thing that I noticed when I worked for the government. So I joined the government under Obama and I was there under the transition to Trump. And in my agency, the only person who changed was the person right at the top when we transitioned. Um, everyone else stayed the same. It was all the same um, opinions and attitudes and ideas. And so they, and I saw those people, they were trying to influence the new person at the top, but the new person at the top did still have some, some influence. Um, I'm thinking there was a new regulation that had gone into place at the end of the Obama administration. It was part of the Affirmative Care Act. 
and it was changing how we were going to approach gender identity and sexual orientation. So um, I worked in a civil rights position and we were going to really broaden the protections for those classes. And when that regulation came down, it got challenged in court under the Obama administration. We were fighting the injunction against it. Then when the new guy came in, uh, he was a very conservative religious guy under Trump. And he said, no, we're not we're not fighting it. We're going to rewrite the regulation to make the courts and the people challenging it happy. So they were. So what was happening is we were pulling back on the gender identity and sexual orientation um, expansion. Okay. So from that standpoint, right, the guy at the top had a lot of pull, but from the day-to-day activity and from the general approach to the job, I don't know that he really had any I don't know that he had much of an impact because nothing really changed outside of that one, one area uh, or that one regulation where we, we switched from fighting the injunction to just bowing down to it. Um, so that, yeah, sorry, kind of a long rant, but yeah, I think you're onto something. Um, but like I said, you know, I don't know how much benefit we get from discussing whether we're a Republic or a democracy, because the point is, is there, the way the government is now, we're not purely democracy. We're not purely Republic, right? We're something else. So I think the debate should be is, is that something else a good thing? And if not, what can we do to change it? So I think I agree that you're definitely onto something. It intuitively makes sense to me that people well, I've seen this happen, right? Where they where they they do combine these definitions and they talk about a democracy, wh- whether they're being well represented. There's then there's the, also the question of whether or not people are feeling as though the, the people that are making those decisions actually do have their best interests at heart. So the, so the Republican nature of it, and that's an area that to me is creating the most amount of angst. Uh, as I see it, when I when I communicate with people, this idea that the the people that are elected are using the existing system to further their ability to have power, right? That's the sense that I think many people have. And if you're on the left, uh, more of a, a left leaning persuasion, you may see the current um, set of Republicans is you that's who you view as the right. Um, and it is, it is so funny, just as a minor segue, it's so interesting that we have such a, a narrow view of these left and right. Most people, when they think about it, it is defined by Democratic or Republican representatives rather than a, a more robust view of what conservatism or liberalism or progressivism could actually be and how to reconcile some of those differences. But we think about it in terms of the parties and then the parties represent these archetypes that we we like to debate. But if you're on the left, maybe you look at them and say, well, they're just trying to stop any kind of progress. They don't actually care about most of the people in the country. And then if you're on the right and you look at the Republicans, they, they look at the Democrats and say, you're trying to burn the system down um, and just provide all of these services that people don't actually want. We're not actually representing the people. So both people feel as part of this discussion that they're not actually representing the people. But they, um, and that their side, of course, has full ownership of what that representation should look like. So it, it's clear to me that this is this is happening. And it's it's difficult to understand how much of it is related to um, the people who are in these elected positions 
feeling like the the voters uh, don't really understand their ignorance, so it doesn't matter, or they don't have power to change it because the incentive structures have emerged, kind of this the system that continues to blossom with new new and creative incentives that actually don't help the people. They help very small number of people, and I'll put people that have some positions of power. Or is it is it the fact that we've grown this massive system of bureaucracies, right? And I, I'm my bias is that I see the bureaucracy that's that's emerged as being a, a key culprit and perhaps the most, the most at, um, the the most to blame for this erosion of republicanism and not the party, but this idea of representation of the people. And, and it's simple. You have people that are put in these positions, as Scott was saying, they, they haven't changed positions. They are considered experts at what they do. There is no real, uh, the incentive structure that you have in the private market to move people out as the, the, the environment changes is you need new blood and you have to up tier your skills and you have to compete. That doesn't exist in the bureaucracy. We know this to be the case. I don't know that we have to debate it. And therefore, these people are almost fixed for life to some, some degree. And they are increasingly over time having a bigger say in all of our lives. And, and so the examples could be something like NAFTA that occurs in the, in the late 90s under the, the Clinton administration, where people can look at Clinton and blame him for that. Well, he was advised by economists, both at ones that he brought in through his administration, but also at the bureaucratic level, that were telling him how this was going to work for everybody, right? The free market enterprise was going to work. And, and what information did they not share with him, sort of the downsides of what was going to happen? We're 20 years on, and many people can look at NAFTA, and there can be a debate about its pros and cons. Myself, I remember in college learning about how great free free trade was. Um, and in a lot of ways, I can debate it and talk about why I still think there's value there with, with some levels of rules, right? But we, know, we didn't talk about the offset of all the people that lost their jobs and, and the dislocation that we've had in our, our economy. So I know you you at the beginning of this said, well, I'm not making a positive or negative uh, statement on whether it's good or bad. I'm, I'm, I'm putting this forward to asking the question of, is this happening? And I think, again, just to summarize, absolutely, I think it's happening. I think that we're, we're struggling with this model. Uh, and I, I want to ask some questions and thoughts on that. And, and I think that if I, had to, if I had to point to where the greatest problem is, I think it has to do with our bureaucracy, our institutions, how they're ingrained, how, how that affects our governance. And uh, I, I, I've been in, in, a, in a belief for a long time that we're at a crisis of competency. And I think that crisis of competency is primarily happening at the bureaucratic level. So, okay. So we all agree that this is, this is happening. This is real, that this thesis is, is a problem. Both, you know, you have this idea of enfranchisement, but you also have this idea of representation. Um, that's just, it, it doesn't seem to be aligned. Myron, from your perspective, let's assume that this, this is right. Do you have some thoughts and some models that help you think about how we got here? Uh, I have some thoughts and I'd love for you guys to help test those thoughts and those models, right? So, so one of the, you know, one of the perspectives on this is to look at the concept of democracy itself, 
democracy meaning as we're defining it in this conversation the you know the breadth and, and nature of the voting franchise and it's an empirical fact not even up for debate that that democracy defined in that way has expanded in America over the last 200 plus years uh, not only in the segments of the population that are participating in voting but also uh, and and Scott talked about this a little a uh, bit earlier, but I'll just get more specific. The uh, the nature of what portions of the uh, the direct originally built in government mechanisms are directly elected. Senators originally were not, and now they're directly elected. President originally was not, and now is directly elected. And many states have ballot initiatives for direct uh, uh, um, voting on laws and these kinds of things. So no question that democracy has expanded. So if, and democracy largely to, to much of the population, uh, at least, you know, if you listen to maybe messages in, in mainstream media, et cetera, democracy is somewhat sacred, right? We're spreading American democracy around the world. Democracy is considered, uh, a, it's presumed to be good and right and and yet there's a you know a minority view and you think of the uh uh the book by by Hans Hoppe democracy the god that failed right of really questioning democracy so one of the sort of mental model ideas that comes out of this is whether this is inherent in the nature of democracy that um when you know the, the as the uh uh, you know, if you've got two lions and a zebra voting on what's for lunch, right? And so that kind of concept of democracy is that that the democracy itself is inherently flawed, and and to formulate that a little more uh, a little more clearly, we can take a historic analogy. Okay, so in the early part of the 20th century, when socialism was on the rise, there was a theoretical debate, uh, and uh, over whether socialism was superior to capitalism and sustainable. And, and Ludwig von Mises definitively ended that debate. And I think 1919, I, I, I'm not sure that I don't recall the date when he published, uh, his ideas on the socialist calculation, uh, flaw, which is basically without market prices, you cannot, uh, have, an economy that functions and allocates resources effectively. And so it took, uh, it took what, 70 years from that point before the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall fell roughly. And, but, you know, the common, uh, the common idea that, well, Reagan, you know, beat the Ruskies is not true. The Ruskies beat the Ruskies because they didn't have a sustainable economy. Okay. Why am I going into that? The point is that there was a fundamental flaw in socialism with its inability to do economic calculation, but it took 70 years for it to collapse. Is there a fundamental flaw in democracy that you can launch it in 1776 and it takes 250 plus years, but eventually it's going to reach that unsustainable point and it's going to fail? That's one possibility. The other possibility is now it's not a problem of democracy. It's just the way 
that we're going about it right now. And if we tweak it, we could fix it and we could make it all better. Uh, and I don't really know the answer to that. I'm curious if you guys have thoughts on it. That's a good question. And I lean towards the inherent flaws of democracy being the problem when you know, the, the the problem with democracy is it leads, like you guys have mentioned, it leads to a lot of self-serving and it leads to politicians trying to buy votes, trying to convince the pop and try to keep a population uninformed and um, playing on their emotions in order to get votes. And we hear that a lot now with the idea that um, the politicians are promising all of these welfare programs, you know, quote unquote, free money. Um, to to groups to large groups of people without and the people who are voting for them right they don't understand what the impact is when we talk about free education and free healthcare right they don't understand that it's causing your taxes to go up and it's going to cause distortions in the healthcare and the education market uh, they're just looking at it solely from the I'm going to get something free so. To me, I, I don't know how you fix that, because even if we restrict the vote, um, you're still going to have uninformed people make voting. And democracy, I think, only works when the population's informed. They have to know what's going on so they can make an informed decision. And with just the way the way our culture is now, everything from you know, biased media to social media and echo chambers. I think it, it's really hard for people to have the information they need in order to vote. And we'll just look back to the Biden, Hunter Biden laptop thing where, you know, just before the last election, that story got dropped on the New York Post and Twitter and a lot of the social media outlets blocked it, um, kept people from knowing about it. And then, Paul, maybe you remember, I think it was after the election, um, someone did a poll and ask people if they knew about the Hunter Biden laptop thing. And if they if they had known about it, would that have caused them to change their vote? And based off of that poll, right, there's strong indications that Trump would have won the election. So in that case, right, there was a, a concerted effort to keep information, pertinent information to the election for some people out of out of the news. So people couldn't incorporate that into their decision making process. And for me, I mean, we can we can talk about trying to set up a regime where stuff like that doesn't happen, but I don't know how you do that. So to me, the inherent flaw in democracy is that people in positions of authority can manipulate the amount of information that's out there and they can appeal to emotion and they can essentially buy votes uh, by you know, I don't know if I would call it underhanded. I mean, they're just, they're gaming the system. Um, but there's, for me, that's a problem. Well, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say, I, I don't know. And, and here, here's, here's what, what came to mind is, uh, I really do like the idea of a, uh, fatal, fatal flaw. You could call it a kind of a zero day attack. That isn't the exploit that isn't known except for 200 years. Uh, but is the fatal flaw ignorance uh, the, the people being ignorant and intelligent, or is the fatal flaw that they are perhaps informed, but they are making there's a, there's another conflict that exists between the types of decisions to, for governance. Th that's that's what I'm coming back to. What exactly is the fatal flaw 
in in democracy. Um, because like the, I mean, maybe it was Aristotle mentioned this idea that the 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 captain, you're on a boat and you have democratic elections, and the captain that's voted in promises everyone beer, but doesn't actually get them to shore, which I think is a really nice. Uh, representation of the challenge of democracy is that people, I think, Scott, what you're saying is that people, they do vote to be self-serving, which is part of the, the selfish gene, right? You're, you are going to make decisions for, for you uh, and, and, and work out from there, right? Maybe, maybe you, you'll make decisions more first for your family, or your close-knit uh, friends and family, and then from there you work out. So is the fatal flaw the ignorance? Is the fatal flaw that you're selfish? Is the fatal flaw, and there's no coordination mechanism that can override that, um, or is the fatal flaw something else? But I, I, I do think that there is a flaw, uh, part of maybe the incentive structure, uh, and there's also a, an alternative interpretation which says something. To go back to Winston Churchill, uh, he said, uh, "Capitalism is the worst system, except for all the rest." We could say perhaps democracy is the worst system except for all the rest, although I don't know that to be true. And and there's there's other arguments I know. Uh, I recently was coming across, I think, arguments that, that, Scott, you and I have talked about, the idea of immorality of democracy, that when the group makes a decision to impose some kind of restriction on the individual, we accept that, but we wouldn't do that with individual to individual. So we've we've surrendered some of our rights and some of our morality to this to this super group but we're, we're not really acknowledging that we're doing that but we, we we maybe use this sort of um i don't know if it's calvin or hobbesian kind of view well we, we've got a grand contract as a society therefore it's okay for us to make that leap and i think maybe we're maybe we're stepping back so so myron and maybe you said this but i didn't catch it let's assume we agree there's a fatal flaw in democracy and it's you've got a couple of candidates right there. One of them is is ignorance of the, of the people voting. Uh, one of them is selfish kind of intentions. Are those the two that maybe are the candidates? Is it a combination? Have you thought more about what that flaw may be? Well, I I've thought about it again. Not not any crystal clear conclusions, but let me let me throw these thoughts out, and you guys can help test them. So first of all, when we talk about the ignorance of the people. There's a tendency, a human tendency to say the people are ignorant, present company excluded. But uh, I want to make sure you know, that if we're talking about the ignorance of the people, that includes that includes us, uh, or at least it includes me. Uh, and so what is, what is the nature of that? Now, so I te- I'm going back to something we discussed the first time I was on with you guys in terms of mental modeling. You know, we think of, in terms of structures and functions. And we also then think analogically, right? And so is there something structural about the nature of democracy in general or American democracy as it's currently practiced? And just think about it, okay? And, and to the listeners who maybe this is the first time that the idea that democracy might have flaws in it, it's not sacred in it, and uh, that we would question, that might be really shocking to certain people. And I'm not taking... Uh, a strong position on it. What I'm doing is just evaluating and, and questioning here. But if you just set aside preconceptions and think about it, and someone were to describe a system where trillions of dollars 
and the most powerful military in the history of the world by a wide margin and all and and uh, all of this land mass and hundreds of millions of people and their fates and their destinies that's what that's what's at stake here and now our system is this we have a voting mechanism where the vast vast majority of the votes are already pretty much in the bag for one party or the other uh, certainly at the presidential level anyway, and, and, and largely at the congressional level. And so we come down to what they call the, the battleground states. But even within those battleground states, it's not the entire state. It's down to certain counties that are in play. And within those counties, it's actually specific precincts. And so we're, we're down to just this handful of sometimes a few thousand votes that are going to, that are going to make the decision on these trillions of dollars and this military and these hundreds of millions of people in this giant landmass. And that's our system? Really? There's clearly something structurally flawed about that. Now, is there a better way to do it? Do I have, do I have the answer? Um, you know, I, I don't really know. But the stakes are so big that it invites all this gamesmanship. And, and really, you know, if you, if you just think about how big the stakes are and how small this ability to use some data mining and gamesmanship and marketing to flip it one way or the other. It's kind of dumb. <laughs> well, yeah. So going back to my point about having an informed electorate, if we did have an informed electorate, then I think that would broaden the pool of swing votes. People wouldn't be so married to the idea that I'm voting Democrat straight down the ballot or I'm voting Republican straight down the ballot. They would be making more informed decisions. So there would be less opportunity for the Cambridge Analytica's of the world or, you know, whoever else targeting that one, you know, 22 year old single mom working, you know, at a you know part time fast food job um, to try to flip her vote. And it, now, I mean, with the computing power we have and all of the information, right, they would still be able to do that, but it would be a, a bigger endeavor. But I wonder one thing you, you talked about, uh, um, Paul and I have talked about this on the podcast before, but this this idea of stakes and reversibility, you're exactly right. It's a very high stakes decision and it's not very reversible because when you elect somebody, right, when we elect a president, we're stuck with them for four years and we're seeing that now with Biden. And when when we let the politicians say whatever they need to say to get the votes and then not carry through on those promises, um, whether it's because they never had any intention of carrying through or whether it's because that entrenched, entrenched bureaucracy is not going to let them carry through or, you know, whatever reason, um, you've just you've basically invalidated the entire system. Because like you said, again, it's a high stakes decision and it's not reversible. So if you don't get what you vote for, um, that's a big problem. I mean, it's like buying, um, you know, I don't know, buying a frozen pizza and getting it open, opening it up. And it's a bunch of cauliflower or something. Right. Um, you, you've been completely lied to. And I guess in that case, though, it's reversible. You can just take it back to the store and, and return it. And, you know, in this case, unfortunately, we can't return our president. Um, so. The other thing I was thinking of, too, is when you brought up high stakes, 
I can't believe I forgot this, but yeah, getting back to root cause analysis, well, what makes this entire thing so high stakes? It's all of the power and the money involved. And so if we tell the government, hey, you know, we're not going to let you have all this power anymore, right? There's no more of this emergency powers, shutting down the world, making people wear masks and social distance or whatever, right? We're going to, we're going to constrain your powers, then there would be less incentive for people to go into politics who are going into it for um, less than moral reasons or less than, (laughs) or I guess for selfish reasons. Uh, And then there would be less incentive to try to game the system. There just wouldn't be as much money involved in it. And um, Paul, do you remember we talked when we did our voting episode, we referenced an article where they said like winning the presidency is worth like a trillion dollars to a political party or something like that. I mean, this is, we're talking massive money. And so it's no reason why, or or is it any reason why there is such a fight over these elections and there's such an incentive to game the system and try to manipulate it. So when we get to root cause analysis, I mean, that, that may be it right there is maybe it's not an inherent flaw in democracy so much as it is just an inherent flaw in our culture where we have given so much power to the central government. And if we were to scale that back, then maybe democracy would work better. Yeah. So I I remember the article vaguely. I remember us discussing on the, uh, on the podcast and I'll say that it, it, it is a massive win, right. For, for either party that is able to, both, uh, I think financially, like the incentive structure that's there is something you, you you can't avoid, right? I mean, it's it's irrational to say, well, we don't care about that, right? Uh, when when the when the purse strings are out there, a, a couple of thoughts came to mind. One was we have democracies in other parts of the world, and, and a question may may be, are they experiencing similar types of issues? knowing that their systems are, are different. So for example, in England, they can call a snap vote and replace the prime minister. And they have a different way of electing the prime minister, which my understanding here is not, it's not super deep, but my understanding is that uh, you, you basically, you have many different parties that are part of their, their, their parliament, the House of Lords, and you can vote and they have to create coalitions. And then of the coalition, they, they have a representative um, and so you're, you're, you know, in the last election, you were voting, uh, if you were supporting Labor, you were supporting Corbyn. And uh, I think there was a conservative party that, that put up Boris Johnson. Um, so they do have people that go out there like Corbyn, like Johnson, that are trying to drum up attention because they assume that they're going to be able to, to build the coalition and be the representative uh, at the top of the top of the, the pile, so to speak. And are they... Are they? Do the people feel like their representation is strong, right? Do they feel like their their bureaucracies are representative of their desires, right? Uh, do they experience the same idea that they have a fatal flaw, or are they are they content? My high level observations is that many parts of the democrat democracy around the world if we put a blanket and connected all of these elements to this grand system of democracy are experienced similar struggles to different degrees and i think the the reason may be that it could be that we we were we're experiencing a, a technological shift that we don't quite understand 
and and I know we've talked about it a couple of times, this idea of the physical and the digital. And as we transition to, into more of a digital space, what those needs and desires and preferences are. Um, I think we're also seeing a, you know, we, we've, we've seen much of the world, not all of it at all. We still have third, third world countries, but we've seen so much of the world benefit from industrialization that uh, you may be reaching the endpoints of some of that industrialization, some of the benefits that were harvested. And so as economies in nation states start to strain with how to sustain rather than grow, they're having to deal with some of this division. How, how do we represent those people that maybe uh, require a lot of resources like the elderly uh, at a time when uh, we still need to encourage the the younger people, the people that wouldn't benefit from the system? So some people have to pay in, other people have to receive. It's a mismatch. Is is that another potential a possibility of what we're seeing there? I think there's another element too, and I, I want to. I, I know this is kind of touching on a couple points, but it, it's it's really core in my thinking to how a system is going to be sustainable over time, and it's focusing on truth. I I, I think one of the reasons that, uh, and this is an idea that's been going through my head for a while, that socialism will never work is inherent in its model is that it's not focused on truth. It's focused on uh, how the method, how the ideology is purported and sustained, such that at any time, if there is evidence that uh, would, would run counter to the ideology and the groups and the preferences made by that ideological party, they have to suppress it. But what does that actually mean in practice? What, what that means in practice is that any decision, any truth, be it scientific, uh, economic, uh, sociological, uh, societal, that is true on its face is always supplanted by the desire of the party, which means it's not actually seeking truth. In the case of the markets that you mentioned, Myron, about how the USSR defeated itself, if you're, not, if you're unwilling to see the truth of why you're unable to have bread in the shops, what leads to, and, and we talk about prices being a, a core element of, of coordination, if you don't understand why that's a truth that you need to seek and why it's valuable because you have a, a different ideology, then what does that lead to every other decision that you're going to make, right? And I feel as though we're, we're, we're experiencing some of that in our bureaucracy and how our environments operate, where they're working by what they want versus what is. And then you have this other element of like coordinating with a, the biggest power in the world, the CCP which is built off of a similar ideology that I just described. It's not built on truth-seeking. It's built on maximizing their ideology. Every country in the world, CCP and China, the number one trading partner for something like 80 to 90% of the world's economies. And you see how it's part of our discussion now about language that's used and what we're seeking. So I wonder how much of that has influenced over time. You know, this this arrogance that was part of the 20th century about uh, we've we've defeated the idea of socialism and we've defeated the idea of communism, only to to never acknowledge we never we never defeated the idea that people prefer nice stories to the honest to God truth, and maybe that is the the fatal flaw in democracy or one of them that people don't like the truth. People don't want to hear the truth. People don't want to vote for the person that says, listen, I can steer us out of this mess, but you're not going to like what we have to do to do it. I'm the, sh- I'm the ship captain that can get you to shore, but by the way, you don't get a beer every night. You get a beer every three nights 
but it's actually going to be measured on how quickly we can row. Because if we don't actually hit these milestones, you don't get any beer because otherwise we won't have enough uh, liquid to make it to shore. Who, who actually gets the vote, right? A lot of points there. And you guys have been generous to bring me back a third time. And this might be the last one because it's not very cool for me to come on your show and put you on the hot seat, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, we have not really talked directly about the most controversial part of my thesis, which is, is democracy the opiate of the people? Mm. And, you know, if we have had over time, which I think we've agreed on the on the factual part of it, which is, yes, democracy has expanded while constitutionalism, federalism and republicanism have all declined. And the, um, you know, the conflict and all of these things. So why do we have democracy if it's not working? And is it because it's the opiate of the people? to get everyone feeling like, yes, we won, or, ooh, we lost, but we're going to win next time, and not recognizing these other things? Or is it something else? Again, that's kind of the most controversial part, and, it, and it's probably not provable, but I'm curious what you guys think. I agree with you. I think it is. Not to get too conspiracy theory-ish here, but... Go, you know, go, go if, down the tunnel, go down the <laughs> rabbit hole. Yeah. I mean, if the government wants us to stop talking about conspiracy theories, it should probably stop engaging in conspiracy theories. But um, there's a benefit to keeping the population divided to the elites in charge. And the more that we can keep democracy and the fight between the left and the right in the headlines then the more that the elites can do behind the scenes that we're not paying any attention to. So I think they, they can game the system in a way to make the elections come out close. They can game it in a way to accuse the losing side can always accuse the winning side of cheating or something. And it, it gets the two sides riled up, gets them arguing with each other. And then we're not paying attention to the bigger things. Um, so I think that's I think that's it. And the idea of, you know, the US being the defender of democracy, I mean, that's a relatively modern uh idea. I think what World War 1, Wilson was the first one to really start pushing that. And that was, you know, and it was an attempt it, I mean, World War 1, if you believe this believe what some folks say is, I mean, it was really democracy versus monarchies. And it was the democracies finally taking down the old monarchies um, in Germany and in Austria and Hungary. Um, and from there, right, we, we have spread this idea that democracy is equal to freedom and that it gives everybody a choice or a say in how they're governed. But we know that that's not, that's not really true. I mean, we've been talking about it, how, yeah, you can vote, but if you have someone in a position of power who is offering or is telling other people that they're going to take something away from you and give it to them. I mean, how much say do you really have in that, right? You don't have a lot of, uh, you, you don't have a lot of sway in that particular type of situation. 
So I think Myron's right. I think that we keep talking about democracy at the same time, you know, it's kind of like, you know, look at my right hand and don't pay any attention to my left hand. You know, it's look democracy over here. Meanwhile, we're implementing these emergency powers and we're, you know, making it, the president is making in incredibly liberal use of executive orders. We have the executive agencies making rules, which are effectively laws in contravention of the constitution, which says that the legislature makes the laws, not the executive. So all of this stuff is going on behind the scenes and people don't really understand it. They just keep seeing over and on in your left hand, this, this, this debate over democracy. Did Trump break the law by using Cambridge Analytica to target particular voters? So, yes, I think you're 100% right. I think democracy is being used as that flag or whatever saying, you know, look over here, look over here, look over here. Don't, don't look at what's going on behind the scenes. So I, unfortunately, I wish we were more controversial. I could come out and say, no, I, I don't think it's the opiate for the masses. And you guys are both full of it. But in, in truth, I think it's the myth. You know, I think about, uh, is it Yuval Harari and Sapiens? He talks about the, the value of myths being able to organize and create structures of humans that can grow beyond, let's say, a herd of 300 or so, right? Gossip was one way of creating sort of a, a community because you were talking about others and, and that was one way of spreading ideas. And then you had this other idea of myth that you had to be able to spread over time. And so if I take that construct, that idea that the myth that we that is used today for, for people to, be, uh, to feel enfranchised, to feel as though they're part of a system and to therefore voluntarily and involuntary, uh, you know, at <laughs> through some kind of coercion to give into the system. I think that is what you see with this idea of democracy, this conversation about democracy and the, how it's used by politicians. But let's, let's be clear. It's not just the politicians or the bureaucracy. Many other elements of our society benefit from this myth that the democracy can just be fine-tuned to address our problems rather than uh, a question that's more deep-seated. Is there a fatal flaw? What is that fatal flaw? Do we need to go down to ground zero to start up again, right? Uh, there's the, the media that benefits from the attention market and gathering people's time and energy. There are all of the marketing companies that benefit from this myth being propagated, that it's so important for you to get out. There's all of the other services that support the voting apparatus. You think about the the uh, Cambridge Analytica, which is using uh, its its data analytics to target people. You think about Facebook and its ad networks, and it's it's the benefit it gets from political investments. There's a massive incentive structure here that maintains the idea that this myth must be true, and uh, and. If you have a, a masses, if you have masses that are constantly questioning that myth, then you're going to have stronger division, I would imagine, than we even have today. And perhaps that is not bad, right? If we have to put it on a scale, I, I th th what I'd love for people to take away from this conversation is that this is a material conversation that needs to take place 
for Americans about the, the future of our society, right? That we, we are struggling right now. Uh, we have division. People are confused. They're angry on, on all sides of the political spectrum. And there is this sense, well, as long as my, my guy gets in there, my gal gets in there, that things are going to be, we're going to right the ship. And then, of course, the opposite is felt by the person who loses that battle. And, um, and I, I've heard a lot of minor updates, I would say software updates uh, to this to the system, things like ranked choice voting is one. Uh, and people, I think, are, are also confused about how do we upgrade our system, this system that's entrenched with this myth that, that are people going to understand an entirely new system? And what could that system even be? And, and, and I think we can look to people that are spending a lot of time contemplating it. And I would put that in the crypto sphere. I know we've, we've all talked about that. And we like to talk about that decentralization. And there's this concept of DAOs, which are these decentralized autonomous organizations. They're struggling with how to give representation, how to have voting, what, who needs to vote, why they need to vote. How do you actually make decisions? And they, they're doing a lot of in my mind, some of the best work of trying to say, are there alternatives to the existing system today? And as, from what I've seen, I don't see alternative models that are very extremely compelling, right? I think maybe some of them are more, Scott, what you've talked about, this sort of um, more of the, the, the radical libertarian, anarchist libertarian, volunteerist uh, libertarian. But I think that, that model too also has challenges, right? Um, and, and we'd have to co- contemplate all elements of the system. As you said, the constitution, federalism, republicanism, and democracy, um, how are those all, all, all components of that system integrated? And, um, I, I think that's a big pill to swallow. So is it, is it more, is it more likely that the system just, um, kind of grinds to halt over time or that we can actually upgrade it? I don't know. Uh, yeah, time will tell on that. I liked where you were going with that, though, in terms of some applications. And and if I could just give a couple kind of how do I bring this down to street level or, or coffee shop level um, when I'm interacting with people, because I'm not uh, under the illusion, nor do I have the interest in some sort of campaign to structurally change the entire governance of of this giant landmass. Uh, so, but you know, I have, uh, as anyone listening, you know, closely would notice, I have really not expressed a lot of personal opinions or political opinions in the, in this episode. I do have opinions, uh, and I have very strong opinions about my personal principles. But what I really don't do is let that spill over into strong passion about politics, and I have unfortunately lost friendships over the years of people who couldn't accept that I didn't agree with them. But I would never, you know, I would never want to allow politics to interfere with a friendship to the extent or any kind of relationship to the extent that it depends on me. I have friends on on left and right, and uh, I can find things to agree with both of them on, I can find things to disagree with them on as well if they're open to civil conversations. But I would just say, hold tightly to principles, but hold loosely to politics is is one of the things that I really do. And then also just planting seeds of ideas, just like in this conversation, but 
doing it out on the street for folks that may not listen to a, a podcast like this or whatever, of just getting people to question like this concept of democracy is sacred and uh, that this system of, you know, fighting over a few a few votes in these battleground precincts for control of the massive stakes that we've talked about, that that is actually a system that makes sense. And, and so that perhaps in the future, if there is a, a transition point, a pivot point, that more people have thought about alternatives in advance, as opposed to having no concept and just reacting in a crisis. That to me is what I like to see come out of conversations like this. I, I agree. And I think you just made a plug for how to never argue unless you want to. Our our book on how to have constructive, productive conversations without it turning into something heated and messy. And Myron, I love the point you made because no one should view what was discussed today as an attack on their politics. Everyone, uh, I think, though, could could be involved in thinking about how they think about their principles. Uh, I, that is just a, a beautiful way to put it, that uh, what we need. And, and if more people are able to do that uh, without the uh, control of politicians and, and the media, where y- you feel as though if you consume that information, that there is a, a right and wrong that everyone is falling into, they're boxing people in, and, and, and we have to be very divided. There's, I remember seeing someone say, you know, they traveled across America and they met with people of all backgrounds, and they were just surprised at how little, how little anger there was, how little division there was, and how charitable people are. You know, oftentimes we forget that we are also those things, right? Especially in the midst of, of still dealing with COVID and the response to that, uh, we can forget some of our better nature. So I guess we're, we're, we're at the top of the hour. Myron, I... I think you've really fleshed out these ideas. I wish we could have come to you with more debate. We could have come to you and said, no, you're wrong. Here's the, here's the reasons you're wrong and these ideas are terrible. Unfortunately, I think you found two people that have really bought into your thesis. Uh, but hopefully uh, for all those out there, they, uh, all the listeners, they can, they can at least share some new ideas about how to think through some of these questions. Is there anything to wrap us up today? Any, any parting comments beyond the great ones you already gave about better discussions, less politics? I just have one, which is your how to never argue again unless you want to is great. I've read it and I highly recommend it. Well, thank you, Myron. I appreciate the plug. We both appreciate the plug. That's going to do it for us today. For everyone out there listening, listen, there is so much to get with Myron and his co-host, Jeremy, on uh, Mental Supermodels. I'm getting that right, right? Yep. Mentalsupermodels.com. It's so easy in my head to reverse. That's why I had to ask the question, but it's a great show. They have a lot to share. Go check it out. Go check out Myron. You can tell from this episode, he's got a lot of great thoughts on how to structure your thinking, clear thinking, clear communication, everything that we want. Scott, anything before we wrap up today? I think I'm good. Just uh, go download how to never argue again guide. I mean, it's easily worth like fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 and we're giving it away for your, your email address. I mean, can't beat a deal like that. Hey, we are heading into the holiday season. You're going to have your aunt, your uncle, your cousin, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father. Everyone's going to be at that holiday table. Someone's going to say something and you're going to, you're going to have this guy and go, Oop, I know how to take, to, to bring down the temperature. You're going to be the savior of the Christmas dinner. That's, that's, that's what, that's what the promise is right now. Okay. So go over there, go there, go download it. 
All right. That will do us for today. Appreciate everyone uh, tuning in. Leave us comments. Let us know where you think we are right about the principles. Is there something in the theory uh, that maybe you disagree with? We'd love to hear your comments. Let us know. And until next time, take care.